This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We have lots to talk about in this hour of the program. We're going to be talking about addiction, and we are going to be talking a little bit more about what's bred in the bone, remains in the flesh, things like adult children of alcoholic characteristics, and also going to be talking about new doctor apps. Would you like to see your doctor um, through an app? Medicine is becoming extremely digital. We never thought we could do that before. I actually see patients on a program that I use called VC, which is HIPAA and PIPED compliant for Canada for privacy. So uh, because privacy is critical in healthcare. Also going to be talking about sexual bereavement that can apply to uh, people who have lost their spouse. I get a lot of emails from widows and widowers who tell me about this and how little is written about it or how little is talked about. Also going to be talking about addiction and uh, why is it that Addiction is treated like a crime, uh, especially when people relapse. Well, there's a new case before the Massachusetts Supreme Court that might change the way we view uh, addiction. Um, But right now, I want to get right into this because it's around uh, the subject that I talk about a fair bit, I think. I hope. Pleasure. I love pleasure. Um, But before I do that, I want to talk about, I have a gift to give out um, on the show tonight. Uh, So we're going to be giving this out a little bit um, later on in the program, probably after this segment. Um, (laughs) You can see this. This is the... It is a a luxury item, I want to tell you. It is, um, uh, you've, it's a, it's a ride like none other. I I certainly hope in the, um, in the second hour of the program that the children are fast asleep. Uh, I have an O want to give out. Uh, it is, it is beautiful. It is luxurious. It is high end. It is high level. It is high intensity. And it will certainly lead to, tremendous pleasure, pleasure like you've never experienced before. So I'm going to be giving that out uh, in a little bit. But first, I do want to talk about pleasure. And so in the studio, I have with me Dr. Allie Carter. She is of Simon Fraser University, and she is also with the BC Center for HIV, for for Excellence and HIV. Good evening, Dr. Carter. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) Pun intended there. Okay. <laughs> so you've done tremendous research and, and a lot of work around HIV, which is yet another subject that is stigmatized, um, and but also uh, around sexuality and sexual health, especially as it pertains to women's pleasure, which we don't talk about. We don't even educate women around pleasure when they are preteens or adolescents or, or even as adults. Um, women are often shocked when I say to them in my clinic, practice, remember, sex is for you. They're like, what? They always thought it was a service industry for, you know, in particular, the male partner in their life. We see that a lot in heterosexual couples. So what has some of your research uh, underscored as it relates to women who have been diagnosed with HIV, how they express their sexuality, and, and even the definition of sex? Um, you know, how, how is that? Uh, how did you, what did you find in your research? Hmm. So I'll just begin by saying that HIV is unlike any other illness. It's heavily, not just stigmatized, but moralized, and in some cases, 
even criminalized. And that can have a tremendous impact on women's sexuality. So it's not just a medical disease, but in many cases, it's a social one. So in my research, um, we've interviewed more than 1,400 women living with HIV across Canada and asked them questions about their sex life. What does sexuality look like for you? Um, and how does HIV stigma um, and other social injustices like violence and various forms of trauma, how has that impacted your sexual life? And so in our study, what we found is that one in two women living with HIV in Canada view sex as an important part of their life. And that's a really significant finding because in our society, women living with HIV are often not viewed as sexual beings or as having a right to a sex life. So that finding is quite uh, uh, significant. It tells women that, um, you know, there's, there's women out there who um, enjoy sex or having sex, and we need to talk about ways to, to support that. So I hear that, and I hear one out of two women feel that sex is important. And why, why don't two out of two women feel that sex is important? So half of the women with HIV find that it's important. Right. So that estimate, while I think can be empowering, for women who may feel like their sex life is over after uh -huh. a diagnosis with HIV, that estimate is lower than general population estimates. And so um, there, you know, the, the other half of that statistic is women who don't find sex that important. And what we're trying to do in our research is um, break down myths about sexuality in our culture. I think we live in a society where um, often sex is viewed as normal or necessary uh, for a healthy sexual life and vice versa. Not having sex is in some way abnormal or at the very least unfulfilling. That's not true. And, you know, I think as sex researchers, uh, we tend to think that having sex is a better sexual health outcome than, than not having it. But in a context of, of violence, 80% of women living, within, living with HIV in our study have experienced violence in, uh -huh. their, in their lifetime. So in a context of violence, HIV stigma, HIV criminalization, um, not having sex and, and demonstrating that agency may, in fact, be a better sexual health outcome. Absolutely. I can, I can totally understand that. So you've undertaken this research, and, and it, you looked at a, uh, you did basically a Cochrane review where you looked at a number of um, studies around sexuality. And so um, in terms of how women def with HIV define or how does society define sex for women, especially women with HIV? Great question. I'll answer the latter first. So how does a society mm -hmm. define sex and sexuality for women living with HIV? Typically in terms of penetrative, assumed to be risky intercourse. So that's how society looks and, at sex. And typically... You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> and typically when, so we reviewed, as you said, we reviewed uh, the, the quantitative literature mm -hmm. on sexuality, because I do primarily quantitative research, mm -hmm. among women living with HIV globally. And what we found was that the research was not actually about women's sexual health. It was about primarily protecting others from the acquisition of HIV. And so in that 
in that research paper that you reference, we really advocated for a need to shift our understanding of what sexuality means and, and look at more positive affirming aspects of sexual quality of life, which we know are greatly affected by the diagnosis of HIV. We see a lot of research and a lot of support for women and men living with other chronic health conditions mm -hmm. and hardly anything when it comes to people with HIV. And we could debate the reasons for that, but I think it's because many people don't believe HIV positive women's sexuality is important. And, you know, I think that's just an extension of many people don't believe that women's sexuality is important. Absolutely. And so then women are diagnosed with a chronic condition such as HIV. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, that. absolutely. It's and no I, longer a death sentence. It's no longer a death sentence. And I just want to take this opportunity to say that the latest science shows that people who take HIV treatment as prescribed and achieve and maintain an undetectable viral load have effectively no risk of transmitting the virus to an HIV-negative partner with or without condoms. So it's a chronic disease. People are living longer, healthier lives. My research aims to explore and support women to live also happy sexual lives. That's a better guarantee than somebody with herpes, for example, right? Um, I had a, a patient in my clinical practice, if you will, my virtual clinical practice, who uh, had herpes, and he was met a woman, and he'd had a, um, a long relationship with somebody, 10 or 15 years, where they were both, they both had herpes, but um, in this one, he he had not spoken to the woman until they started to get hot and heavy about it. <laughs> and that's the wrong time to tell somebody that you have a sexually transmitted infection. But she actually said, well, I'm, I'm not going to judge you and I'm not going to be disgusted by it. She said terrible things to him. And, and of course she didn't want to engage in an intimate relationship with him. And he felt his sex life was over, but he doesn't have quite the guarantee that somebody who is taking an antiretroviral medications and, and prep that type of, um, mm -hmm. those types so Prep is for people who might be at higher risk of HIV, but yep. not yet have it. Mm -hmm. and, and for those living with HIV, they can take interretroviral therapies, right. which effectively, um, as I said, leads to no risk of transmission as long as they're, they're taking them as prescribed. So it's a very powerful, um, you know, the, the advances that we've made in medicine are remarkable. And I'm hoping to, along with my colleagues, we're really hoping to capitalize on this very hopeful time to normalize sex and intimacy for people with HIV. And, and this paper that you are the first author on, uh, The Problemization of Sexuality Among Women Living with HIV and a New Feminist Approach for Understanding and Enhancing Women's Sexual Lives. Tell me about that feminist approach and, and why you think that's important in terms of improving sexual lives for women with HIV, living with HIV. So the vast majority of research focused on sexuality and HIV among women has been conducted from a medical perspective. And in this paper, I argue that a feminist approach can actually help us better understand and support women's sexual lives because with the medical approach, I, I mean, you know, there's various modes of thinking and, and various disciplines that can uncover different aspects of sexuality. But under this medical framework, what we discovered was that research was primarily focused on penetrative sex when we know sexuality is much more, more than expansive that. than that. And Touching, it was, caressing, kissing, 
different types Erotica, of Erotica, watching, reading. Pornography. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. And when, when investigators were exploring uh, predictors of sexual health outcomes, they focused most commonly on biological factors like CD4 counts and viral loads, which did not predict outcomes. And so under a feminist lens, it really encourages us to look at what does sexuality fully look like from women's perspective and what do we need to change in the world around them? It's not about their bodies. There's nothing dysfunctional about them. What can we change in our society to help them have the kind of sexuality they want? And this is exactly what I'm trying to do for women the globe over. I am. It's a big job, but somebody's got to do it. Allie Carter, thank you so much, Dr. Allie Carter. Love your work. I'm Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is where it gets fun. Um, I have a phenomenal um, personal massager for you, a personal device. As many of you know, I do love my womanizer, but when Owand reached out and said they want they had something to compete with that. <laughs> I said, bring it on, baby. Uh, and you know what? This is a luxury item. It is phenomenal. Uh, absolutely. It's beautiful, number one. Let's start with that. It is, uh, it's got a gold handle on it. It's, it's rather large. It's an impressive device. Um, it's, you know, honestly, um, I, pleasure is one of the most important aspects of women's sexuality. I firmly believe in that. Many people will try to tell you that uh, the journey is just as good as the destination. Don't let them give you that baloney, uh, because that's not the case. It's very important. No matter how you get there, it, it is actually important that you do get there. And, uh, and if you have difficulty getting there, this gorgeous wand. Uh, the one that I have to give out on the program is a beautiful black and has a gorgeous gold handle. Um, and so like everything, you know, in the in the interest of research and science, I have to try all of these devices that come my way. <laughs> It's it's really it's it's a hard job, but somebody's got to do it. Um, so this luxurious uh, device uh, will certainly um, make your day. I was incredibly intrigued by this uh, beautiful O wand vibrator, and you know uh, it. You've heard the term "knock your socks off." Well, the O wand delivers um, much like it uh, was delivered quickly. <laughs> It is uh, is it's a discreet and beautiful item. Um, you know, it's it is rather large, but you know what? I'm a queen of large. <laughs> I like some like it big. Um, I like large. <laughs> I do believe. I do realize that good things come in small packages as well. So, um, but you know what? I am a a packaging size queen. And this certainly uh, came, it came to my office and, um, and it, everybody was like, what is that? You know? And so when I opened it up, uh, it was to, uh, a, a, just a, a, an orchestra of, whoa, wow, what is that? So lots of interest in this decadent, dark, lavish, beautiful, uh, impressive gift if you want to give this to somebody or if you want to win this yourself. So if you are the sixth caller, one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. It comes in a beautiful box, but you know what matters is is the end result, and uh, it has um, a knobbly sort of. Uh, o burst attachment that that comes with this device that is put on top of the um, 
the wand, and so you can use it with a smooth surface or um, with the knobbly device. And you know what I like about that? Um, it's that you, it's variety, right? And so in this beautiful box that if you wrapped it up, it was like, it's like the perfect gift that you want to, um, to give you it. You know, some people on first impression, you might think that it is, um, you know, it is big, but you know what? Who said big wasn't good? Uh, it is the queen of the wand vibrators. Uh, it's, uh, it, it delivers every time. It's, um, you know, uh, black is the new black, <laughs> let me say. Uh, and it's rechargeable and, you know, very, it's uh, ergodynamically friendly. So, you know, there's just so much about it that is incredibly impressive. And you know what? You just feel like you got a bit of a one-up on everybody when um, you have charged this little baby up. So one 9898 I want to read some of your emails as well. Um, first of all, I, I did a TEDx talk, in case I haven't told you about that, 15 million times, but it's had 15 million views, and I love this little um, email. Dear Maureen, just watch your TED talk, TEDx talk. It's a life-changing talk for me and my wife. I cannot thank you enough for putting up extremely intricate ideas in an amusing way that made us resolve our issues. Naked. Best regards and keep up on your good work and keep getting naked. That's that was good advice that I gave. So just some of the advice I gave in that little TEDx talk, which has had not only just um, positive comments, but negative ones as well. You can't imagine how many people will comment on your hair, your necklace, your dress, your bra. Anyway, um, so there's lots to comment on. But um, you know what? We are still looking for caller number six. We're going to go to the news. I am Maureen McGrath and you are listening to that Sunday Night Health Show. And when I come back, you know what? I'm going to be giving out that O wand, which is O baby. Fantastic. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. We are in the final strokes of the program. If you are just joining the show just before the break, I um, I put out um, a little message for the 69th caller, and we've got her, um, to win the O wand, a fabulous, luxurious magic wand that will bring you to the heights of pleasure like never before. And Mary is on the line. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. Are you there? <laughs> That's okay. We can get back to Mary. I have a, um, I want to read an email uh, from, uh, from some of you. And I love your emails. You can email me anytime, nursetalk at hotmail.com. You can also go to my website, backtothebedroom.ca. I had a little um, broken, it was a little broken, but uh, it's fixed now, the contact form. But dear Maureen, my wife and I have been married for 14 years. I was addicted to pornography for most of the first 10 years. My spouse admits that I'm no longer the man I was. Our sex life has been inadequate for much of these 14 years. The longest span we've gone without was a little over a year during my porn years. Typically a year for us, maybe three or four times a year. My wife would have to get pretty intoxicated to get into the mood. We've been to marriage counseling. I've tried to be patient with her. She no longer wants to have sex with me at all. Uh, We are going through counseling, but the topic has yet to come up in discussion. My fear is that she will shut down if I bring the topic up. I got to tell you, Dale, that you have to bring up the topic of sex in counseling sessions. You got to get straight to it. I mean, yeah, a little warm up, a little foreplay is okay, but you actually have to talk about that. I have lots of patients who've come to me. They've been to sex therapists. They've been to marriage counselors and they're like, they never actually discussed sex. I don't see people for two years. I see them for, you know, 
four sessions max, but they're having sex again, you can rest assured. Okay, we're going to try to give this O wand away once again. And now I'm assured that Mary is on the line. Hello, Mary. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Congratulations, you're the winner. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, Yes, the 69th caller. Um, So this is a great device. Now, you're going to have to need two arms to lift it. (laughs) Oh my God. <laughs> it's heavy. <laughs> it's oh large. God. You know, women, we can't really measure <laughs> if it's beyond, you know, two inches. Um, you know, so it's a probably like 14 inches long or so. <laughs> oh my God. It's a vibrator. It's just a little opportunity for, for me to provide more education. Um, are you still okay with it? With the, oh my God, you'll be saying that. <laughs> over and over and over again um sex drive so maybe it'll do something oh you don't have any sex drive (laughs) you poor thing uh, okay (laughs) there's a number of reasons what's well what the heck (laughs) tell it all mary tell it all (laughs) mary is it correct you didn't want to come on the air (laughs) and now you're just revealing it you opened up the trench coat yeah that's exactly why i didn't want to (laughs) (laughs) but you're the one who told not me okay no sex drive you know what you gotta you gotta own it you gotta think about sex and you've just got to do it of course you have to have a healthy vagina to have to um, be able to experience orgasm as well and so many women maybe 30 after they've had a baby pregnancy postpartum perimenopause menopause may experience vaginal dryness it can lead to low sexual desire. It can also blunt orgasm. So you want to make sure you moisturize your vagina. Just important to moisturize your vagina as it is your face. I'm not saying that's your problem. But the other thing is (laughs) slap on a good pair of pumps. (laughs) Be be good with your body and just do it. And you'll, you know, if if you're enjoying it and you're getting aroused and lubricating, experience it and getting to orgasm, you know, we call that responsive desire. And so many women just say, oh, forget I can't be bothered. I'm too tired, this or that. But you know what? It's good to remain engaged. And and often we just think that our sexual desire is going to come to us, but we actually have to cultivate sexual desire. You have to work on it. You, you got to work on it. And whether that's through erotica or through porn or through trying different things or, or winning an O-Wand on the Sunday Night Health Show. <laughs> Listen, Mary, if this doesn't do it, I'm afraid there's no hope. No. <laughs> and I never say that. <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate your call and for coming on the air and telling Thank us you. all about your life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. You Bye. take care. Okay, there's a winner. Yes, yes, yes. She's going to love that. Okay, so now we're going to talk about some other things. I I uh, had a couple in my clinical practice, well, like every single week. You know, the thing about the TEDx talk that I did, what my goal there was know who you're marrying. <laughs> that was really the simplest message. I know I called it no sex, marriage, masturbati- masturbation, cheating, loneliness, and shame. Yes, I gave it that name with good reason because, you know, it drew a crowd. I knew the masturbation would draw 13 million people um, alone. But the other thing is I actually really wanted, and and this I forgot to mention in the TEDx talk, and I forgot a lot (laughs) uh, to mention in that TEDx talk, but but that's okay. You know, maybe I'll do another one one day. But it was know who you're marrying because – also, you know, this I didn't mention in the TEDx talk either, but you can, there's things that you can love about somebody at the beginning, like they're organized and they're efficient and they get things done. And then that can drive you crazy like eight years down the road. But 
know who you're marrying. So if you are marrying somebody who has experienced sexual abuse or sexual trauma, that is going to impact your intimate life. It doesn't mean it's always going to be negative, but you just need to be aware. So things like that. The other thing that people don't think about is is because drinking is just so widely accepted in the world, and there's so many functional alcoholics in the world. And so you often don't think of your own parent as an alcoholic or somebody that you're marrying. You don't realize that if they were raised by an alcoholic, they may have particular characteristics. And so there are 14 traits of an adult child of an alcoholic, and I'm going to list them for you. And this was a couple that had been married like 22 years, and they, she did tell me that um, he had been raised by an alcoholic and they started to put together some of his behaviors and how that was impacting their relationship. So here I go. Here we go, the 14 traits of an adult child of an alcoholic. And this is from the book, Adult. This is actually from Adult Children of Alcoholics World Service Organization, but there is a book called Adult Children of Alcoholics, and uh, Woywitz is the author. Um, So they become isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. They can become approval seekers and lose their identity in the process. They are often frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. They either become alcoholics, marry them, or both, or find another compulsive personality, such as a workaholic, to fulfill their sick abandonment needs. They live life from the viewpoint of victims and are attracted by that weakness in their love and friendship relationships. They have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. They're either super responsible or super irresponsible. It's easy for them to become concerned with others rather than themselves, and it enables them not to look too closely at their own faults because they can't bear it. They get guilt feelings when they stand up for themselves instead of giving in to others. They become addicted to excitement. They can confuse love and pity and tend to love people they can pity and rescue. They've often stuffed their feelings from their traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express their feelings because it hurts so much. And this we call denial, and denial itself is a drug. They judge themselves harshly and have a very low self-esteem often. They can be dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which they received from living with sick people who were never emotionally there for them. Alcoholism is a family disease, and they become para-alcoholics and often take on the characteristics of that disease, even though they may never have picked up a drink. Para-alcoholics are reactors rather than Actors. These are some of the characteristics. If you have married an adult child of an alcoholic, this may be why you're having some of the problems in your relationship. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final strokes of the Sunday Night Health Show. This, this is the hour that we get to a little risque, <laughs> a little bit more fun for those of you who dare. I did have an email from somebody, and um, this is the email. Hello, I would appreciate any tips or links to articles about ways to increase libido of women with vulvodynia. Vulvodynia is a pain condition, uh, vulvar pain condition with no known cause. And uh, she goes on to say, my husband and I have been together for six years. The first couple of years, we had a fantastic sex life. One day, sex began to hurt for me. Since then, 
and countless OBGYN appointments, we only have sex about once every couple of weeks. I'm always terrified it's going to hurt, and I think the mental block and occasional pain during sex turns me off and scares me. What can I do to get over this? First of all, uh, uh, it's difficult for me to... I, I have so many women that present to my clinical practice, and they say, I have vulvodynia, and because they read it in Glamour magazine or something. Um, and so there's, um, you know, vulvodynia is it's a pain condition. It's chronic vulvar pain with no known cause. And until recently, doctors didn't even recognize this as a real pain syndrome. And even today, many women don't receive the diagnosis. But my question is, is it actually vulvodynia or is it something else? That's why it's difficult for me to uh, to actually give you treatment for um, what you're going through um, without having examined you myself and having gone through a, a sexual health assessment and an internal examination as well. There's generalized vulvodynia and there's localized vulvodynia, but there are many other sexual pain conditions as well. And there are a number of things that can help sexual pain conditions um, but depending on the source of the pain. And, you know, the, there's a number of, and you want to treat the cause. And so an STI can be, um, may cause, uh, there's some evidence to support that it may cause vulvodynia because, you know, especially if it is during an outbreak um, of herpes, for example, there can be nerve ir- injury or irritation for some reason, whatever reason. There can be an abnormal, uh, abnormal response in vulvar cells to an infection or trauma. There's genetic factors, hypersensitivity to yeast infections. So somebody may have a yeast infection, muscle spasm, allergies, hormonal changes, decreased estrogen, history of sexual abuse, uh, antibiotic use. Uh, this can happen. At any at, for, at any age, it's a little unusual that you didn't have it before and now you have it now. So that's something different. There are some agents that can be used, but um, uh, to numb the pain. But then also that also decreases some of the sensation. So that's uh, difficult as well. Um, so it's it's a this one is a is uh, seriously a tough one. You may want to, um, you know, there's a whole lot of behavioral things like the clothing you're wearing, the laundry products you're using, personal products, bathing, your diet, um, and so you want to make you may want to make some changes around that. Um, you may want to use some lidocaine. But the other thing is there's a feedback loop. If you've had sexual pain before and you're afraid of having it again, you know that actually increases, uh, the, you know, your response. Um, um, your uh, parasympathetic response um, in your body, and you may actually be fearful of the pain and be more likely to experience it as well. So um, it's important to have a proper diagnosis, but estrogen may help. Localized estrogen therapy may help. A little lidocaine may help, um, a numbing agent, and, and all, all of those behavioral issues as well. So I just wanted to go go through that. Uh, Just wanted to, we don't have much time left, but um, we now have doctor on demand apps. You know, our our lives are being ruled now by apps. So a carer became available in Canada and it is the latest in a growing line of apps and websites that let patients connect with doctors or nurse practitioners via text message or video chat that is private, private and confidential because you want your healthcare um, to be, it's nobody's business and you have a right to privacy around that. And this way, healthcare providers can diagnose diseases, write prescriptions or order lab tests virtually. So this is 
is really uh, becoming mainstream in our lives, and this is happening really quickly. So uh, just being aware of it, I use it. I use it in a number of, I use it in my own clinical practice. I actually see patients through VC. It's a free downloadable app. It's HIPAA compliant for privacy. And, um, you know, and privacy is extremely important. I also use it um, in another arena um, with um, prisoners. I actually work in the corrections um, field, and uh, which is why I'm interested in this next uh, case that is out of Massachusetts. I work in corrections, and, and often I see many people with addictions coming into our jails. And there are so many of them that are addicted to heroin, crack, cocaine, GHB, MDMA, um, you know, speed, uh, you know, the heroin, did I say that? Uh, fentanyl. Um, alcohol, of course. So they're all drugs. And, um, and sometimes I see people and I just think, man, that person is so ill. You can see that. The, they're just so ill. Um, it really affects them. There was a case in the state of Massachusetts um, where a woman tested positive for fentanyl in 2016. And 11 days into her probation for a larceny charge, she was sent to jail. And this is typical in the American criminal system and then the Canadian uh, justice system. Um, and so it's Im- next to impossible, if not impossible, to order a drug addict to abstain from drug use. That is like uh, mandating them to get their cancer cured. Honestly, there's no other way to describe it. Addiction is a brain disease, and relapsing is a symptom of it. I have seen so many addicts in my time and in, in this field, and they, they suffer it is extremely difficult. But now this particular case is before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and it has the potential to usher in change that is maybe necessary to drug control policies across America and hopefully into Canada. Because this ch- case challenges the practice of requiring people with substance use disorders to remain drug free as a condition of probation for drug related offenses and of sending offenders to jail when they relapse. And the the prosecution's counter-argument that the disease model of addiction is far from settled science, that in fact, that it is weak. Um, But I'm hoping that um, that this does change the way we treat addiction in this country because it is clear that relapses are common in people, especially in people who are struggling to overcome addiction, whether one considers this a disease or not. The... According to research, most opioid addicts relapse an average of five to six times before achieving full sobriety. So I'm going to keep an eye on this particular case. Um, you know, we as human beings, we we respond to incentives. But, you know, honestly, carrots or chocolate or darn good pair of shoes work far better than sticks and stones. And that particular stick of jail time thwarts treatment process. And, you know, many of these people want treatment and they can't get it. They don't know how to access it. Even if they know how to access it, it's hard for them to get there. It's a it's a family disease. Uh, it affects so many people. So I'm hoping that certainly um, we see changes as a result of that particular case in the state of Massachusetts, <clears throat> my home state. Thank you very much. Um, sexual bereavement. I want to talk about this Um, You know, we are in such a sex-saturated society, yet we don't talk about it enough. Do I talk about it enough? (laughs) Some days I'm like, sex, sex, sex all day long. Um, I've had sex all day and all night. No. Anyway, um, but you know what? It's in everything. It's in best-selling books, blogs, talk shows, radio programs like the Sunday Night Health Show here. Um, 
And, you know, still people have a hard time thinking that older people do in, enjoy sex and have sex. But when many widows, uh, you know, land up, they can, you know, they've lost their lifelong partner. They have lost the maybe the ability to earn income. Maybe they were, maybe their husband was the only one earning income. Maybe, you know, I mean, I tried to put windshield washer fluid in my car. Clueless. <laughs> don't, I still don't even have it. I was fortunate that it rained <laughs> because I can't actually, I'm going to have to ask to have that inserted in. <laughs> anyway, um, but you know what? Sexual bereavement is very real. People in their 60s and 70s and beyond consider sexuality an essential element in their lives, and this is critical to relationships. When one loses this uh, through death of a spouse, they lose a uh, the, a part of them that almost can't be replaced. I have many women who will actually email me asking me for if it's okay to use a vibrator for the first time at the age of 80. Um, this uh, their sex life has to be grieved as well. The shared sexuality was a critical component of their relationship. And um, it's, you know, it's something that we don't talk about. It's something that, um, you know, self-help books focus on unexpressed grief unexpressed grief, but they don't talk about the grief that is that intimate part of our lives, that that part of us that is so close to somebody, that that part that says, uh, I knew you so well, you knew every erogenous zone in my body, you touch places that nobody else has ever touched before. Um, And women are reluctant to talk about this because grief is like a power keg waiting to be ignited. And the, it's it's a part of the grief that we really don't talk about or don't think about necessarily, and it's and it's really sad. And there are very few resources around this, and so I I think it's uh, very healthy and very helpful to embrace one's uh, sexual loss after a person has died away died, and your sex life is no longer what it was. So we're coming to the end of the program, Andrew. Thank you so much for a bang up job tonight. Really, really bang up job tonight with that O wand. And uh, you know, you go to my website, backtothebedroom.ca. You can all also follow me on Twitter at back the number two the bedroom. Uh, you can go to Instagram and remember. As I say, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I'm Maureen McGrath. You've been listening. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at CKNW.com, the Radio Player Canada app. Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.